This is Stigma, where we talk with leaders from many industries about how mental health and addiction have impacted their lives. Many people suffer silently from mental illness, addiction, depression, anxiety, and trauma. They never seek help because of stigma. In this podcast, host Stephen Hayes and his guests share their stories of recovery in order to encourage others to do the same. Here's Stephen. Welcome back to another episode of the Stigma Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Yosef Albanawi. Uh, we were introduced by some mutual friends in the mental health tech startup world, and we've had the opportunity to talk a few times about what he's building, as well as his experience with addiction in his, in his personal life. And he is a graduate of Wake Forest University. He is a fellow at the Halcyon Incubator in Washington, D.C., which is focused on supporting early stage social entrepreneurs that are you know, really working to change the world, kind of like what he's doing. And you know, he's also currently the co-founder of a startup uh, called Pill Leave, which is focused on the opioid addiction, which is it's a huge problem in our society. I think most people listening to this podcast already know that. And that, that problem needs solutions pointed toward it faster than we can bring them to market. So I'm really excited to have him share his thoughts with you today on how we can reduce the staggering number of deaths uh, in, the, in, the, in the lost wages and the impact on our economy uh, daily, monthly, annually because of this opioid addiction. And before we get started, just to make sure you know, there's a number of ways you can communicate with him, with Yosef. He's available on social media. He, um, his company has a website. He's on LinkedIn. And I will link all of that in the show notes. But without further ado, Yosef, thank you for coming on today. No, thank, thank you, Stephen. And thanks for um, relating with our mission and uh, being a vocal advocate. I believe that it's through our stories and experiences and our struggles in some cases that we emerge victorious and uh, ready to tackle one of the biggest uh, healthcare issues that we face as a society. So I'm honored to be here and honored to be uh, serving my community. Yeah, that's that really resonates with me that the through our struggles part, because, you know, I feel like like my life, I feel like I had a lot of success in like a commercial kind of way for, you know, the first part of my life, but, but it wasn't until I really failed that I feel like I started to find purpose and mission. And I feel like, um, you know, going through addiction kind of gave me that opportunity. And I think you've had some of those struggles as well. Is that right? Well, that's perfectly right. I think for me, um, I've tasted, I've tasted it at a very young age. So everything after that was just upside. Right. And so I think I was, you know, that was, I was very lucky in that sense. Uh, to, you know, have caught it early and then, you know, found a way with the support of my loved ones and um, my support network around me, which is crucial to get out, get out of that environment and find a way to recover. And, you know, there's no silver bullet. Unfortunately, if there were, then we wouldn't have uh, millions of, of people struggling with it. So, but there is, there are ways that you can uh, identify, screen for it early uh, and then find the right people to intervene, which is, in a sense, what we're doing. And so, you're, personally, for you, what was your experience, if you if you don't mind sharing, around uh, opioid addiction early on? Yeah. So for me, addiction, the way I see addiction, it's it's uh, addiction is a disease, right? And so, whether it's opioids, alcohol, other antidepressants, or prescription drugs, addiction is addiction. For me, it wasn't opioids; it was other substances, prescription drugs that were, you know, accessed by, you know, through friends and, and 
you know, your peers. And so, you know, growing up as a teenager, you don't really expect it happening to you. And, you know, I was very naive to that. I, I grew up in a, a very safe environment, uh, you know, I overprotective parents, you know, typical parents always said, you know, avoid, you know, avoid drugs, you know, these things are just, you know, they're not, they're not good for you. And so I was very naive to it, but unfortunately, addiction differs for every person, right? One, you know, one person can have a sip of alcohol or smoke a joint and uh, pretty much, you know, wake up the next day with no cravings and no need uh, to to go after that high and other people are just you know it just clicks and then suddenly you're you're in this cycle so you know for me I definitely did not realize that that addiction ran in my family it's it's genetic right and it's environmental as well yeah. so that's kind of how it started it started as pretty much an experiment and then unmanaged uncontrolled uh you know things start spiraling down but luckily enough i was able to receive an early intervention when my loved one was uh my mom specifically was able to take notice very early on and uh and was able to intervene with the support of a professional and that's what they call the Anderson model. I didn't. I didn't know this until recently. I, I had no idea that inter- interventions had models, but you know. F- but it's very, very important to look at it that way and uh, and and seek professional help when you need to. So when, when that intervention happened, how, what made you receptive to it? Uh, because I think there's a a million dollar question here for people who have loved ones that are struggling, which is how do I get them to listen? How do I get them to get help? And so what? made you receptive to the intervention and then to the the treatment or the help that followed? That's a great question, Stephen. And, and, you know, like I said, I don't think there's a still silver bullet or the most effective intervention out there, but you highlighted a very important point, which is, you know, awareness, you know, you, the person that's receiving the intervention, your loved one who's struggling, it's kind of in a way, it, it, it's up to them to a certain degree, right? You know, once you receive that intervention, what happens next is, is really up to you whether or not you're receptive to it. So in my case, you know, I, I think that, you know, again, knowing that I was very aware of the fact that I wasn't being stigmatized, right? I wasn't being, I didn't feel attacked. I didn't feel pressured. It was very natural. The way the intervention occurred, I knew that these were my loved ones and they wanted the best for me. And so I also pride myself with something that I've, that, that I believe some a big piece of who I am is my level of awareness. I've, I've always tried to, um, kind of elevate myself to a level of spirituality that, that, you know, guides my day-to-day life. So I would say that spirituality is a big piece of it and, and awareness is even bigger, right? So unfortunately, it is up to you to decide what to do with it. But I believe that you as a person can find and pursue the right steps to get you there. And it really differs from person to person. You know, for one person, it, it could be yoga, it could be meditation. For another, it could be journaling. For another, it could be mindfulness, right? So uh, for another, it could be religion. And you have to find that medium because it's very, very personal. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And so you've had this personal experience with addiction. And then fast forward to today or to the last two years, you've been digging into this problem around the opioid epidemic. And, you know, I, I want to hear you, I want to ask you some questions about the business you're building at Pill Leave. But before I do that, I, I want to sort of set set it up by asking what, for the people that are listening, how big of a problem is this opioid epidemic that you are trying to solve a problem or solve inside of? 
Yeah. And so I think to start there, I want to kind of go back three years ago before the company was formed as it was being formed. Um, so flash forward, you know, seven years after that intervention, uh, I was senior year in college at Wake Forest. And that experience led me to really trying to understand addiction, what it is being an observer. So I started working at a rehab center there, uh, just volunteering, you know, every Tuesday I'd go in and just attend sessions with people that uh, were struggling with addiction and loved ones and just realized how devastating it was being an outsider. You realize different things and you, and then I quickly realized how lucky I was. And so that's where my passion began to unfold. I kind of found my purpose there and that was building up. So the thing that I realized was I had no idea in hindsight. Yes, it made complete sense that the opioid crisis was bound to happen, but I didn't, I didn't really know it until I was there because the striking thing was that 10 years ago, 90% of the population in the in rehab centers across the country were uh, people that were struggling with uh, alcoholism, right? So alcohol was the biggest culprit. And then I learned that from the specialists there that that flipped kind of three, four years ago to opioids. And now over 90% of, of the people there were uh, coming in with opioid addiction. And that's when I quickly, that was before it ever became public. That was before kind of the response that we're seeing today, you know, a year before that. So that's when I picked up that there's something's coming, right? And it's, it was already there. It arrived, but publicly speaking, it wasn't. And so I started doing some, some research, right? I, I thought it was a kind of a, it was a local issue. I thought that maybe it was more of a North Carolina issue, but quickly realized that, no, it's much bigger than that. Did the, did the research and realized the numbers were insane. I mean, uh, in 2016, when, when, when I was there, I think the rate of overdoses was at roughly 60,000. And I think the, the reference there was that people were dying, more people were dying because of opioid overdoses than the Vietnam War put together. Wow. So that like fact got me going and I was like, you know, how could we, I mean, we're at war, right? And so that, that was it. I was like, we're at war. Why don't we have, why, are, why aren't we talking about it? First of all, why are we still stigmatizing it? Why can't we screen and prevent it from escalating, right? Because treatment is a thing. We're all aware of treatment. Treatment has been around for a very long time. We're seeing a move shift away from traditional treatment models to, you know, with tech to, to, to evolving that. I think that's a great path. But for, for us, it was like, let's capture it before it becomes a problem. Let's, let's you know, preventative, essentially preventative health. Because if we capture it early, then we can save thousands and thousands of dollars per patient. And, and that's huge, financially speaking. But then the social aspect is we're hopefully preventing overdoses. You know, it's, it's a huge problem financially and socially. Yeah, I agree with that. I think treatment's treatment. And when I say that, I mean, there's a percentage of people that are going to go to treatment and they're going to get, they're going to get help and they're going to come out and they're going to stay clean. They're going to stay sober. They're going to stay well. And there's a percentage that are not. Uh, and I think in the long run, I don't, I don't, maybe a better treatment method will come around or maybe we'll use psychedelics or maybe who knows what treatment will look like in the future. But I think you've nailed it here when you talk about prevention. If we can prevent, then we can create a society where in the future, we don't have the problem. We don't have to worry so much about treatment because we've, we've stopped the problem. And, you know, right. I, I just, it, it's devastating. And the number of people that are dying because of this, I mean, daily in the United States, hundreds of people are dying because of opioid addiction. And it's, 
it's something that a lot of people still don't even know is going on. Yeah. And, and part of it is, you know, leveraging uh, platforms like, you know, what you're building here with, with your podcast and with, you know, the work that you're doing to, you know, help startups uh, grow and, and connecting them to the right people. So it, it does, it, you know, in every sense, it, it takes a community to raise a child, right? So I think in, in this case, it's, it's even more important because there are so many different actors in this healthcare industry, especially in our model, we need all of them to be on board. And so I believe that, you know, we're on the right track in terms of awareness. I think right now we just need to put our money where our mouth is and and actually implement those solutions because there's a lot of promising solutions out there. It's not just believe there's a bunch more. You you know, you know this more than I do. You're seeing all the activity in the space. And so I believe that we're on the right path. We just need to commit to it and actually take risks, you know, take risks and and try to try to shift that model. Right. For the longest time, we've been as a healthcare industry operating uh, as a fee for service. And we come in, we treat the patient when they're you know already sick or when they're already addicted. And we spend thousands and thousands of dollars there. I believe the model has to go back where, hey, let's you know use technology. Let's use telehealth. Let's use remote patient monitoring devices to track at-risk patients uh, at home. Because truly, you know, misuse occurs at home. It doesn't occur at the clinic. It doesn't occur at the pharmacy. It doesn't occur at the rehab center. It occurs at home. Uh, that's where diversion is happening. That's where misuse is happening. So that's why our device is very, very important. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, what's interesting is the data that you can gather at home where the misuse is happening is a lot more empirical. It's a lot better than the reported data that the doctors are getting at their office. Because if I'm addicted, and, and I think I think anybody can understand this, but I think you can only truly understand this if you have suffered from addiction. If I'm an addict and I'm in addict brain mode and I walk into my doctor, it does not matter what happens. I am going to figure out what I have to say to get him to give me more. Sure. So the data that he's gathering subjectively from me is wrong. And so I think what you're doing, and I, I, want, I want to hear you explain it for the people listening, what you're, what you're doing is incredible because it's gathering empirical data about my use of my medication from the first time I use it to help figure out if I'm uh, developing an addiction or not. And that's, that's incredible. Right. Uh, and so I'd, I'd just love to, I know I kind of did the spoiler there, but I would love to hear you tell me a little bit about how you decided to start a business in this, become an entrepreneur and start a business solving this problem and, and how you're, you know, what your business is doing. Oh, thanks for setting it up. You know, it's never a easy journey. Every stage of it, you're you're accompanied by challenges. But I I believe that the team is ever ever important, and especially in the early stages. So, my co-founder is not with us today, but if he were, he'd be the center of attention. He's my co-founder, my friend, uh, my CTO. You know, it's it's it really comes down to who you're starting the company with. And so, two years ago. As I mentioned, I was working at the rehab center and realized that there was a huge problem and uh, quickly figured out that these patients were misusing prescription drugs. Actually, three quarters of heroin users start by misusing prescription opioids. And so we kind of thought through it. The source of opioids are, you know, prescription opioids. The the, the, the bottle that is be, it's being distributed in is, frankly, it's, it's not, it, you're putting controlled drugs in an unsafe packaging tool. It's, it's very ironic. And so that, that's where the idea came out. It came out from that irony, which is, you know, let's put control back in controlled substances, right? And so the first flaw was that these 
files, these packaging tools that we're so accustomed to. Shouldn't we should have a better, a more secure, uh, a more uh, safer packaging tool so that patients can use their opioids safely. And that's where it stemmed from. And then slowly started building out into a whole system. And uh, my co-founder, who I met uh, at Duke University in North Carolina, is a biomedical electrical engineer, has worked on similar concepts in the past, worked with medical devices, and understood the necessity behind it. As he explains it, his family members also struggled with addiction. It wasn't opioids, but it was addiction. And for him, it resonated with him a lot. And, and that was it, you know, to start, I believe, to start uh, any, any company, but especially, you know, high tech, uh, social impact, healthcare that requires a very, very long time to realize, you know, the, the outcome. It's, it's not a short journey. You, you really need to be purpose driven. I, I don't think it's only passion. I think passion is, is one element of it, but I think purpose is, has a higher level of, of awareness, right? So for us, it was like we realized that this was our purpose and we needed to do something about it. And so that's kind of how Pelive was formed. And we we created uh, our first prototype about a year and a half ago. And, it, you know, if, if we had a picture of it, which we can share it with you later, you know, it was uh, definitely didn't look like the device <laughs> that we have right now on our website. <laughs> Let's just say that. But the concept was was sound and we quickly started getting feedback from physicians and patients and pharmacists. And the response was uh, very, very, you know, very, very positive. And that was, you know, that's part of starting a company. How can you iterate very quickly, but do it in a cheap and cost effective way? Don't spend too much money, too much time trying to figure out in the early stages, get validation as quickly as possible, and then try to pivot or iterate from there. And so we, I think we did a really good job. And basically, before we actually developed any device, we got word back from um, one of the largest pain clinics in Maryland that uh, their VP there said, if you build this, I'm going to give it to all my patients. And these people have tens of thousands of patients every year. And they're at risk. Their chronic pain patients have been using opioids for a very long time. And physicians are feeling more and more liable today uh, if these patients end up getting addicted. And what's happening right now is they're getting cut off their medications altogether. So the pendulum is switching back. So our solution made complete sense. It was for us a no-brainer. So it was all about the execution from there. And, and so slowly but surely, we built our first generation device actually sold it into the pain clinic, got some really good uh, early data, and now we're beginning to expand that. So we're on to our next generation device. But before I get in there, I want to, I forgot to mention what Pelive is. Pelive <laughs> yeah. is, <laughs> is a smart, secure uh, pill bottle that adapts into existing pharmacy workflows, which means that it, it's, it locks into Rx files and uh, tracks, monitors, and reports uh, real-time data of uh, opioid use uh, to physicians electronically. So it's an end-to-end system. What that means is we start with the physicians, we sell to the physicians, we tell them, hey, you know, you're prescribing you know, opioids to potentially at-risk patients. This device can make it safer for you to prescribe uh, by reducing your, your patient's risk, right? And so these physicians are under a lot of scrutiny today. So it makes sense. So they go on to prescribe it. And then the patient literally goes to the pharmacy, their preferred pharmacy, and will already have their, our 
pill dispenser already behind the counter at the pharmacy. And the pharmacist packages the opioid in our bottle and gives it directly to the patient. So the, the, the big piece of this is how can we integrate into existing workflows? And, and so that's really the biggest piece here. And through, throughout the last two years, we've iterated on the product and we've actually designed it in a way that fits into existing uh, standards when it comes to dispensing. So all the pharmacy needs to do is dump in the pills into the R- orange RX file that we're so accustomed to. They take our device. It's literally a cap that locks into the orange bottle. And then they give it directly to the patient and the patient takes it home. And it's a quick and easy setup via the app, they log in, verify themselves, uh, and then can dispense dispense one pill at a time at a push of a button. When does the patient find out that they're getting this pill bottle as opposed to a traditional pill bottle? Yeah. So they find out at the physician's office. So the first piece of education and awareness comes there. And that's very, very important because, you know, that's part of their treatment. Physicians are basically the way they see it is it's kind of an opioid contract. If you want me to prescribe controlled drugs, I want you to be a part of this program because this is going to make it safer for you and me. Mm. So that's so your marketing to the physicians. Is that right? Like you're, that's who you're going out to sell this to. Exactly. We're marketing directly to physicians. More specifically, we're marketing uh, to pain management physicians. And so that's kind of our first market because just of the high prescribing rates, the awareness there, uh, and the, the risk that they're facing when it comes to prescription opioids. So it's a much quicker sell. Eventually, our goal is to scale into other controlled drugs. We believe that the opioid epidemic, unfortunately, is not going to be our last epidemic. There are other drugs that are being misused and abused, such as antidepressants and stimulants like Adderall, different patient populations, but we're already getting some traction in those markets. So uh, as we scale into opioids, we aim to further expand our, our offering to to the wider controlled drug market, which is a $30 billion uh, market. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I was curious, how do you, you know, how do you show the validation, I guess? So you, you mentioned that a minute ago, and, and I know you've been getting validation and traction, and you've got some pilot programs you're running. And I was wondering if you could just kind of tell me a little bit about where you are uh, with those. Sure. No, that's a great question. So our vision is to become a controlled drug standard for prescribing, dispensing, and using controlled drugs. So it's very simple. Like I said, we believe that the standard of, of care uh, for those patients are not where it should be. So our vision is to, is to create that new standard. So to get there, you need a lot of key opinion leaders. You need a lot of pilots and validation, which is where we are, uh, kind of pre-commercialization. And the data that we're basically beginning to show and, and trying to expand on is uh, kind of three pieces. The first one is compliance. What compliance means is that is the patient using their prescription pills as they should? And so it's not really adherence. It's a very subtle difference with adherence is, are they taking their pills? Are they forgetting their pills? With compliance is, they're not taking more than they should. So already all our patients that have used the device did not take more pills than they should based on uh, based on our data. And that's a very big piece of it because what's what we're showing is believes kind of end-to-end system, the way in which patients are dispensing their pills are potentially making them more aware of their actions because all this data is also being given directly to the patient. We tell them how many pills they took when they took their last pill. And that layer of security in between them and their prescription is, is a big piece of that. So by increasing compliance across the board, we believe that, that that's a very big piece of our, our value. The second part is potentially reduction 
in opioid use over time. So most physicians want to get their patients off opioids, especially post-op patients, right? You go and you get, you know, you suffer an injury, you uh, go through a complex surgery. How can we get you off your opioids as quickly as possible and reduce the amount of leftover drugs that would otherwise go diverted? So uh, reduction and, and, uh, and diversion are kind of, they fit together. So by reducing the amount of pills that they're taking and getting them back into the pharmacy to, to dispose of these drugs is, is a very big piece of it. What we're seeing right now is a lot of patients, post-op patients specifically, are, have a lot of leftover opioids that are just sitting there. And what happens is you have a loved one, a friend or a family member, a relative that comes into the medical cabinet or asks you for one. And that's how diversion occurs. And that's actually how addiction occurs. So by having that security with the device, by having, you know, sensors that would go off if a patient tries to break it open. I mean, all these things are aimed to prevent diversion. But with Pelive, we can get those patients back into the pharmacy because it's a reusable device which means that they can use it for multiple prescriptions. So let's say you're scheduled to refill in three days and you have 20 pills left over. We have that data. So if you come into the pharmacy and you, and you somehow don't have those 20 pills there, then something happened, right? And so we have that data to, to protect uh, patients from, uh, from diverting their pills. Yeah, that's, that's really great. You mentioned something about your co-founder, having had worked on some similar concepts in the past. And I was, that, that made me wonder, I mean, how many people are trying to build new pill bottles and how, you know, how do you think about that landscape, if you will? Yeah. Oh, great question. Um, so I alluded to it previously, the medication adherence is one of the biggest, one of the biggest problems in healthcare today, uh, especially when it comes to elderly patients that are on uh, drugs, high priced drugs, uh, that, that are sold through specialty pharmacies because, you know, at the end of the day, the pharmacy and the pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, they're paying for these drugs. And if they're not being taken, you're wasting billions of billions of dollars a year. So there's a lot of solutions that are trying to solve that problem. There's a few companies we know that are in the space. They're typically, you know, what they call smart pill caps that monitor when a bottle is opened or closed. So, with that, it's it's a very different problem. And I believe that smart pill bottles are not equipped to solve it because if a patient doesn't want to take a medication, they simply won't. There's really no way of telling unless you have sensors embedded in the pill. And, and that's a different story. And, I, and there is a farm biotech company that's actually pursuing that, that route, which is, I believe, the most effective route. But then we can go into you know security and, and HIPAA and stuff like that. So that's a whole different conversation. But going back to it, that's not what we're doing. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that we don't want patients taking more. And so the data is, is much more accurate, right? Because if a patient, if we know that a patient took two or three more than they should, then that's a risk factor. We either know that they're ingesting it or they're giving it out. Two of those outcomes are a risk. And, and by flagging it, it's, we capture that information much more accurately than a company that's trying to, you know, figure out if a patient took their medication because I could open up the bottle, take a, take a pill and then toss it in, toss it in the trash, which is what, what's happening. A lot of elderly patients that simply don't want to take their drugs are just not taking it. So I think for that problem, we need different ways of solving it. I think the education piece is very important. How can we educate patients around medication management 
that is as important as as simply a you know a remote patient monitor device or a sensor in a bottle, right? And so that's how we look at the the landscape, and and we believe we're the only solution that's focused on prevention uh, in a way that captures accurate data at the point of dispensing, and that fits into existing standards, right? So we're not recreating the wheel. We use traditional RX files that adapt into our our, our device. Uh, pharmacists can dispense drugs, you know, with very very little hassle, and that's a very big piece of it. Otherwise, they won't they won't use our device. And so the way we design the product is 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 uh, is very important to the value that we're bringing to life. Yeah, I can I can see that, and it sounds like you're you're at this point in the business where you you've got your product, you, you've you've found some product market fit, you've got some people that are using it. And have you, do you have data from those early users that, that tells you uh, something about where you're going? And then are you, are you at the point or are you about to be the point where you're really ready to, to scale the business? Yeah, great question. We're at the point of kind of scaling and not, not too rapidly. We're scaling with, uh, we're just adding new hospitals to, uh, uh, that are using our system. So right now we're active in four and we are in the process of onboarding uh, five more. And that, that's nationally across the board. States include Kentucky, Washington, Massachusetts, Oregon, Virginia, you know, Maryland, DC. So, you know, in the next six months, our goal is to be active in at least uh, 10 hospitals in total. And so these are, you know, large hospitals, integrated hospitals that care for thousands of patients. These are large research hospitals. And so that will establish a, a huge a piece of validation that is necessary because, you know, like I said, physicians buy, buy products from physicians, right? And so establishing key opinion leaders, you know, vetted uh, tools that have gone through uh, well-established uh, studies and pilots is actually necessary. Uh, the founder of Propeller Health couldn't have put it better. There was a great article that he wrote uh, on TechCrunch and basically went over the difference between a healthcare company, uh, a, a healthcare startup, and and a you know a, a typical startup. People don't realize that proof of concept is necessary in our space. And if you get it wrong, you simply will not commercialize. Or if you will commercialize, you'll put a lot of people at risk, including your investors. So that's a that's why we're focusing a lot on on proof of concept which is the stage that we're in our aim is in the next 6 to 12 months we aim to be in a position where we can commercialize what com- commercialization means for us is a variety of things we are in talks with pharmaceutical companies that would like to add our device as a combination as a combo therapy so that's one way of commercializing another way is um, through physicians basically mandating the device in their clinics so if you're a patient that you know, goes to X hospital, you and you're taking control drug, you will basically, you need to use that standard of care in order to get your opioid. So these are a variety of ways that we're on path that we're going through. So I would say we're kind of pre-scale, but we're getting to a point where we're beginning to, uh, to really expand this. That's awesome. I'm, I'm really excited about what you're doing and I can't wait to see it come to market. I think it's going to be uh, really crucial in this fight uh, to to get to reduce the deaths, to reduce the cost, to stop the spread of the addiction to um, opioids and to other prescription medications. So I'm I'm excited about what you're doing. I have a couple of other questions for you that are a little bit more high level about the the problem set and and more the industry 
that I, I just wanted to pick your brain on. And mm-hmm. one of those, so I've been having this conversation lately about, you know, what, how is the war on drugs, if you will, in air quotes, or how does the labeling of drugs or the, I don't know, the criminalization of illegal drugs, how does that play into the addiction crisis? Should, should drugs be illegal? Should, should any drugs be illegal? That's a, <laughs> I, you know, I think we can go on and on there, but it's, it's my it's favorite topic a, these days. I, 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 I'm going to mute myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's such, it's such a, it's such a tough question. And I really, I really mean that. Uh, I'm not just using it as a placeholder and, and I don't, I don't really have the a, a perfect answer here, but I would say that if you look at other models, if you look at other countries, you can see why someone would be pro legalization, right? And the same could be true. The opposite could be true. Portugal and the Netherlands, for example, are two examples that uh, two countries that legalize to a certain degree the use of uh, controlled and illicit drugs. And the crime rates dropped. Uh, believe addiction dropped. Admission to treatment centers dropped. And so there, there is some data, but but unfortunately, it's kind of a false analogy to say, okay, it worked here, then it should work there. America is a very, very different model. Uh, America is a is a whole different continent, different people, different. Uh, healthcare system, different culture, and so I think it's it's it could be very very dangerous if we um, uh, use those models as uh, as analogies. And so I, I believe that you know, having said that, certain drugs, you know, certain people, for example, um, I I know this you know based on experience, I friends and family members, relatives that were put in situations where. You know, they could have gone to jail for, you know, carrying, uh, you know, uh, drugs that were used, personal recreational use that supposedly weren't causing any harm to the community. And so, you know, I think it's our goal to ensure that those that are addicts receive treatment. You know, it's, it's it, you know, addicts are not, we have to differentiate between addicts and, and drug dealers, right? And so I think that that the differentiation there is is still very it's, it's still in its infancy and that's part of stigmatizing the problem it's like if you're an addict you're a criminal but that's that's completely you know false it's 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 not true you know an addict could be a ceo at a top company or a you know a person that's struggling to make ends meet and so addiction is a is a universal problem it, it affects everyone so i believe that that is the area that we should be working on more. It's how can we destigmatize it? How can we talk more openly about it and relate to other people? Recently, I've been kind of on the road. Um, I had a TED talk a few months ago. I, you know, I'm becoming more vocal about mental health and addiction. And I believe every time I, I, I speak about it, you know, the response after it is very, very interesting. A lot of people come up after and, and open. They open up about their story. And, and so had we not shared about uh, our experiences, we wouldn't get that. We wouldn't get people to talk about it. And in doing so, we just keep it more stigmatized. So I think that's what we need to do more of. If, if people in powerful positions and powerful seats can stand up and say, you know, hey, I had a loved one that went through it and it's fine. You know, there is a way out. We can make it out. You know, people that are, are in positions of uh, that can make change and impacts. I think that's where we need to see change. Uh, and we're still not there. But I believe that we're on the right path. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think, you know, I think that addiction 
addiction is rooted usually in some sort of pain, um, emotional pain. And, you know, I think that addiction is a societal issue um, less than a medical issue. I think that addiction is something we, we have this society that we've created um, and it's transition. It's, it's come about through agricultural revolution, through industrial revolution, now through technological revolution, where we disconnected from each other. And because of that, we, we feel isolated. And, we, and when we have pain, we don't know how to deal with it. And so we've resorted to these coping mechanisms. And, you know, I, I just think that, that addiction, deterring people, making it illegal, uh, it's, those, are, those are hard conversations. Can you s- prevent an addiction from happening? Yeah, you can stop someone from being able to abuse that bottle of pills, but, but there's this really powerful thing that I am motivated or fired up about your solution that I think is really interesting. And that's, I may have never gotten therapy. I may have never gotten help for anything in my life. I may not be on the radar of anybody in the mental health space, but I break my ankle. I go in, I get prescribed pain pills or whatever happens. And then your bottle tells my physician I'm highly at risk. And then that interaction sends me to a therapist or sends me to somebody who digs in and finds out that I'm suffering from trauma and pain that I experienced 20 years ago. And that's what's driving me towards addiction and intervene at that level. That would be some powerful stuff. Like you would, you would, I think you would revolutionize a lot of the issues in our society. If you used it. Let's talk about that, Stephen. We got yeah. to have a session. Because I think you just uncovered a very big piece of uh, a potential add-on. Uh, so I'm, 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 you know, I'm excited about what you just said, and I believe there's a lot of potential to what we're doing. And it's just a start, which is the most exciting thing for me. So we're just, we're just, we're not even hitting the surface yet, right? So there's a lot more work to do, but I'm very optimistic of, of where this can go. Because I want to see the person who starts to abuse. I want to see your platform connect them with more than just the doctor knowing, I want to see your platform connect them with, Hey, you know what? You should probably find the right way to, to engage with a therapist, or maybe you should consider attending this group or, you know, there's like so much where imagine the cause, the savings to society, because uh, let's say over the life of that prescription, you stop one or uh, some people from, from developing addiction. That's great. But if they still have their roots societally caused, trauma or pain that they were going to cope with with that pill, but now they no longer have those pills, it's only a matter of time before they cope with it with something else. And sure. you could have identified that at this point where they touched your bottle and you, you could save their life. Well, I mean, well said. And it, it, there's so much that we can we can do with this. And, uh, you know, like I said, we're just hitting the surface. You know, I alluded to it previously, three quarters of heroin users start with prescription drugs. Mm-hmm. So as you said, you know, that, that that's kind of the first layer. So if we capture them early and then get them to treatment, get them to help, it's just like cancer screening, right? If you intervene at stage one or two, the survival rate is going to be much higher than if you intervene at stage three or four. And that was actually the question that the, kind of the impetus behind Pradeep was like, we have all these tools that we, you know, we, we have in place for all the major diseases out there, whether it's cancer or Alzheimer's, but with addiction, there's still a huge gap. Uh, in terms of screening, in terms of early identification, in terms of prevention. And so that's really the space that I believe is 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 going to make a huge impact in terms of societal uh, impacts and also financial impacts because addiction is very, very costly. It costs an average uh, of $14,000 per patient per year. And, and that's just kind of, that's 
an average, not lowballing it. So the, actually a, a really interesting study that came out of CMS highlighted that a simple intervention, a phone call from a loved one, from a physician to an at-risk patient lowered the cost of care by $1,800 yearly per patient. Wow. That's like 100, 100 $200 per month. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just as simple as a phone call. But as you said, if we can take that and then expand it to, you know, a whole platform that can connect you to support groups, can connect you to a therapist. And so there's a lot of also partnerships that, that are involved in this space that also could be very interesting. We also don't want to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of other companies that are working on telehealth solutions, uh, connecting patients to therapists. Uh, there could be great revenue share models involved. So I think, you know, we can have a conversation offline, but uh, but a, definitely a very exciting yeah. space to be. Absolutely, man. And look, I, I really appreciate you sharing and, and sort of brainstorming on this with me. I think this is going to be really helpful to folks that are listening. I think it's going to be educational. And, you know, I don't really have a, a lot of other questions for you, but I did want to leave you a little opening here. Is there anything that I missed that you'd like to share as we wrap it up? Yeah, for all your great viewers out there, thanks for listening in. But, you know, I would encourage everyone that's, that's, that's listening to take some time to reflect about a moment, a person in your life. It could be you, it could be your partner, your brother, your dad, your mom that, you know, went through or is going through a similar issue that, you know, Stephen and I went through. And so I would encourage you to try to find some time to maybe have a conversation if you haven't yet. And it could be as simple as that. Simple conversation, uh, raising awareness and just knowing. Uh, the knowing part is is very, very subtle, but it, it's actually very, very effective. So just reach out to those people and, and make them feel loved and, and, and cared for. That's That's what we're here for. I mean, we're human beings and we want to feel loved and, and, and cared for and safe. So uh, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you doing this and, and thank you for your time. And I, and I think that a lot of people will get a lot out of this. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Have a great day. Yeah. So thank you again for coming on, man. Um, and to our listeners, thank you for joining us. Thank you for being here. Thank you for helping to spread the word about stigma, helping to reduce stigma and to help us distribute this message that it's okay to get help, that it's okay to talk about it, and that we encourage sharing so that others will will find help as well. Uh, if you want to connect with us directly, you can through our website, stigmapodcast.com. Uh, on Twitter, we're at StigmaCast. And we, we'd be really grateful if you would share our podcast or rate it or review it on Apple iTunes, on Google podcast on Spotify or wherever you listen to your content. And with that said, thank you. And we'll speak with you next time.